welcome to Equipping Hour. Uh, we've entitled this series, um, Overcoming Millennial Madness, an Introduction to the Study of Prophecy and End Times. And today we're going to be covering part one, why the prophecy, study of prophecy still matters today, or uh, kind of as a footnote to Smedley's sermon this morning is, why should we be reading our Bibles and why should we read the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic sections of Scripture? Over the next three weeks, we'll cover introductory issues in the study of the end times. Um, that is that branch of theology that is known as eschatology, if that's a new word to you. So, so what, is, what is eschatology? And if, you're, again, if you are walking in still, there are some handouts in the back. Death, resurrection, immortality, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, all of these things fall under eschatology as well as the, the future of ethnic Israel falls under eschatology. There is both a worldwide side to eschatology, and there is a personal or individual side. The personal side typically deals with topics such as heaven and hell, and whereas the worldwide side will typically deal with the timing and the nature of end times events that are occurring here on earth um, with a focus typically on the second coming of Christ and his, the establishment of his millennial kingdom. And, and so as you're here because of the title, Overcoming Millennial Madness, it's, it's a reference to that, that millennial kingdom, which is that kingdom on earth that will be established by Jesus Christ that will be on the earth and will go on for a thousand years or a millennium and will eventually transition into the eternal kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth, where believers of all ages in resurrected bodies will, be, will dwell and will worship God for eternity. And so that's, that's what eschatology includes. Now, when we, we mention eschatology or we mention prophecy, there's a lot of different things that might be going through your mind. Um, some are going to be excited um, it's, it's, there's exciting things to, in, to look forward to at the end of the end of our Bibles. Some of you are going to be a little overwhelmed. Maybe maybe that's you're, you're a little fearful as to what we might get into, and then some might just be skeptical. Right? There's there is a great amount of skepticism when it comes to the study of the end times, and and sometimes for good reason. Um, what we all come to this topic with very different experiences, very different backgrounds. And so for some of you, this topic is going to be very familiar, but for some of you, the topic is going to be very unfamiliar. You know that Jesus said he's coming again. You know there's a heaven and a hell, but when it comes to topics such as the millennial kingdom, you know, I might as well be speaking a foreign language. Uh, maybe you've heard the terms post-millennialism, amillennialism, but you might have a very difficult time actually explaining the differences between those. Maybe you might have a difficult time defending your own view, or maybe you have a difficult time even picking a view. So if you find yourself in this position, you're, you're in the right place. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you might have your own eschatological timeline. You're ready to jump right into a detailed analysis of the amillennial system, or maybe you want to talk about Calvin's exegesis of Revelation 20. Um, admittedly, 
eschatology touches on a lot of different areas. It's got its own vocabulary. It stretches across the entirety of our Bibles. And it intersects with nearly every other branch of, of systematic theology. And we simply just can't give this subject the attention it deserves in just a few weeks. Um, so which means at the end of these three weeks, there's going to be perhaps a lot of unanswered questions. And, and that's, that's going to happen. We do want to eventually get to most of those questions, most of the common questions. But just recognize it's going to take a little bit of time. Um, as as Smed mentioned this morning, this, is, this series is hopefully a teaser for what is to come. And so we position these first three weeks as not as an exhaustive treatment of eschatology, but rather as an, as an introduction. We're going to go slow because we want to bear in mind that this is, this is really new content for a lot of people, um, including some of those that are joining us from student ministries and even next generation ministries. So, so one of the, the goals of the next three weeks is just to lay the groundwork for Lord willing future equipping hours where we'll take you know, a more detailed look at these things. So during the next three weeks, what do we plan to cover? I've got this on your handout. Um, we want to cover, you know, why should we even study prophecy? You know, we'll consider how scripture addresses some, some of the common objections and look at scripture's own assessment of the value of studying and knowing prophecy. And that will be kind of the, the content of what we look at today. We also want to un- help you understand the vocabulary that's used when discussing the end times. Hopefully this will help you interact with some of the resources that you might be reading to kind of know what they're saying and by some of the terms they use. Uh, we do then want to cover an overview of some of the major positions. And we also want to talk about what I believe is the, the central issue when it comes to eschatology. And not just that, but we, why we have so many positions. Um, and then, what is at stake for us here in the church and in ministry? We also then want to point you to some resources that you can look at for personal study, as well as perhaps some applications for your own personal reading of Scripture. So, so with that, we'll beginning, jump, jump into your outline. What is prophecy? Um, during this discussion, I will often use prophecy and eschatology somewhat interchangeably, although there is actually a difference. A prophet right, is a spokesman for God. It literally means to speak before another or for another. So in the word of God, the prophet is the one who speaks for God. And so the prophet is a person who speaks the message of God with the authority of God. And they don't speak on their own authority. They don't speak their own message. They don't paraphrase the message. They speak the actual words of the one they represent. And as we come into this study, it's helpful to note that prophecy has a, a twofold, or at least a twofold stress in Scripture. Number one on your outline is prophecy as predictive revelation. Actually, I may not have listed that in your outline. Um, it is revelation that comes from God that has to do with the future from the time it was given. So we have both Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. But that thing true of both the Old Testament prophet like Isaiah and the New Testament prophet was that they gave new revelation from God. And in the case of predictive revelation, 
foretold the future with the authority of God. But prophecy may not always be predictive. Prophecy may also be moral revelation. Uh, The prophet was someone who not only told the future, but he also gave revelation from God having to do with spiritual living in the present. Um, They were not only foretellers, but also forth-tellers, meaning they gave out God's words to the current generation. So the prophet had both foresight and insight by revelation from God. Foresight into the future and insight into the present, both through the Spirit of God, and in both instances they spoke authoritatively into a situation the words of God. Now if I can, if you can turn to Isaiah chapter 2. There will be some passages of scripture that I will simply read and other ones that I'll have you turn to them. So we can start in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Here we can see, I think I lost the audio. Is it coming back? Here we can see. Oh, wait just a second. Sounds like it's back. Here we can see both the interplay of foresight and insight in one prophecy. Chapter, Isaiah chapter 2 through chapter 4 is kind of one continuous prophecy. And in it we have the illustration of both aspects, predictive and moral revelation. So beginning in verse 1, um, Isaiah is speaking about the future millennial kingdom of the Messiah. The words which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. So God's truth here is that the impact of the Messianic kingdom will actually extend to the whole earth in the last days. But beginning in this same prophecy in verse 6, we suddenly move from tomorrow back in today, where Isaiah speaks about the current spiritual condition of Judah and Jerusalem. So in the first five verses, only Yahweh is being worshipped, But then beginning in verse 6, the city is crowded with all kinds of idols and Israel is bound up in the worship of false gods. The land is filled with idols, verse 8. So Isaiah foretells the future and then he pulls back and analyzes the wicked moral degradation that exists in Judah when he prophesied. But then, having finished that in chapter 3... There's a transition still in the same prophecy, and he returns again to the future. Beginning Isaiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day 
saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And in that day, the branch of Yahweh, a messianic title for Jesus, will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. So in this example, the prophet moves from the last days into the present from his perspective, and then concludes again with the last days. So this this. This is important, and I bring this up because this back and forth can be very typical of prophecy. Prophetic messages have, moral, have some moral application embedded within them. So as we read prophetic sections of Scripture, we shouldn't be surprised when we see the prophets moving back and forth from between future events and the time of the speaker to bring attention to that expected response from that current generation. And this doesn't mean that the events being described are actually fulfilled in the present, but the prophet under the Holy Spirit's guidance is drawing a connection between distant events and the current situation to address the the spiritual needs of his audience. Now, if if we read prophetic scripture and our only response to it is the tickling of our minds and our curiosity, if we're only concerned with what is going to happen in the future, and God's word concerning the future does not have a tremendous application to our daily lives, then we have missed much of the force of prophecy in our Bibles. So as you read these sections in your Bible, even when you find yourself struggling to understand the pieces and how they fit together, consider what is this passage revealing about God, about God's purposes, about sin, and about how man is to live in this world. And so as we begin our study, we cannot afford to miss the, the moral instruction and the moral implications amidst predictive prophecy and end times events. So although I will I'll typically use the term prophecy in the sense of predictive revelation um, in a similar way to, I, to the way I use the term eschatology, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that prophecy is also moral revelation. On one additional note on this phenomenon and I'm sure you've observed it, of biblical prophecy is where near and far events are presented right alongside one another. Like this same phenomenon discussed in Isaiah is a phenomenon that can also be true of multiple events that will occur at different times in the future, but still presented together within the same prophecy. For example, this is where we have prophecies concerning the Messiah's first and second coming. We find them alongside of one another in Scripture. We find descriptions of the millennial kingdom and the eternal state right alongside of one another. Um, The fact that God revealed them through his prophets alongside one another doesn't mean they're the same event. And most people will readily admit that this is true pertaining to the first and the second coming of the Messiah. 
events prophesied together despite at least 2,000 plus years and counting separating their fulfillments. But there are many interpreters who are um, seem unwilling to concede that this same thing occurs in places describing other events such as multiple stages of his second coming, multiple stages of the kingdom, but, but this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't surprise us based on what we've seen about prophecies concerning his first kingdom. Now, admittedly, knowing this occurs doesn't always make it easy or sometimes even possible to separate out the various events that are being described. But knowing that it does occur and to be looking out for it will perhaps save you some confusion as you read prophetic scripture and you're having difficulty separating out the various events described. So hopefully, hopefully that was a helpful. I know it was a bit of a long explanation. Um, I do want to turn to a little bit of a personal example or a personal history of my own dealings with this subject um, not because it's exemplary, but because I think it anticipates some of the pitfalls of studying eschatology and how we often come to it, and then also some of the objections that some of you might even have to, you know, why should we even bother with this study? So when I was in high school, newly saved, I was introduced to the study of end times by a fictional book series. I'm sure many of you perhaps have even read that series. That series went on to become something of an evangelical publishing phenomenon, selling 80 million copies. But the danger of these books wasn't the content, but instead that millions of young adults of the 90s came away from these books thinking we knew what the Bible had to say about prophecy and end times, but we are actually biblically illiterate. Um, at least speaking for myself, we had grabbed onto doctrinal snippets that were swirling in the sea of fictional speculation. And that was our eschatology that we had grabbed onto. Now, without commenting on the overall accuracy of these books, for each thing that they might have been right about, my experience and many others' experience only proved that it is possible to believe right things about the end times but actually be clueless about what Scripture actually said. So a little bit later on, I was given some cassette tapes, if you know what those are, on end times from a popular Bible teacher. There was no fictional speculation here. He defended his positions well from Scripture, but as I listened to those messages in my truck as I drove around town, I didn't have my Bible open in front of me. I didn't personally interact with God's word, and I certainly wasn't coming to meet the God of the word. Now, what I did come away with is I came away with some more well-defined doctrinal positions, but still without my own scriptural understanding. My My intellectual curiosity was being satisfied, but my own life was not being changed as a result. It's possible to to sit under and to affirm biblical teaching on the end times, but not coming away with any personal familiarity with what the scriptures say, and then to not have your life impacted by those truths. So while I was in college, I, I then read a mildly popular theological book on end times 
that was coming from a very different end times perspective than I had been accustomed to. This author, he referenced all sorts of scriptural passages that supported his views. The man was educated. He was well-known. He made convincing arguments. He used scripture. And this time, I, I had my Bible open, too, so I could follow along with him. And I was convinced. I needed to abandon my current position, and so I did. And the following year, I had to do a research paper for a theology class. And I chose to write on and defend my new end times position, confident as I was. So when discussing the general thesis of my paper with my professor after class one day, um, he was gracious and said he was looking forward to reading it. And he asked me one simple question about who would live in the kingdom of God. Sounds like a simple question on the surface, and, but it was a question that I, in my newfound position, could not provide an answer for. I had looked at scripture, and this question was devastating on my paper. How, how could I have missed this? I, I looked at the pages of the scripture. I read this book. How could this smart, respected author whose book I had read have it all wrong? It seemed so convincing, full of scriptural arguments. I had followed along and I was confident, but my professor's question struck at the heart of the issue and he forced me to consider whether my viewpoint was compatible with all of what scripture had to say on the subject. Long after my paper was due, I had to reassess everything I had read, everything I had written. I poured through the scriptures, not just the passages that I had quoted, but the passages around them. And then I began for the first time to seek out other portions of scripture that I had neglected, such as the prophets, Zechariah, Isaiah. The persuasive argument that I had been so impressed with earlier was no longer convincing. It couldn't bear the weight of a straightforward reading of the word of God. My view, which was based on isolated interpretation of a few select New Testament passages, couldn't withstand my reading of the Old Testament. So here's the lesson. It wasn't enough to just know what I believed or even to believe the right thing. It wasn't enough to just believe whatever those who were that were teaching me. It's not enough to have the most popular or the most historically held position. Our convictions must bear the weight of the entirety of our Bibles in their own context, in their own words, and allow scripture to build, to shape, and refine our convictions, whatever background that breathed those convictions. So as you listen to me recount my own history, you may be thinking, see, see, that's exactly why studying prophecy and eschatology is a waste of time. I mean, here's the objection, right? There are so many different views out there that are held by different pastors, teachers, scholars, believers, you know, what hope do I have that my interpretation is correct? What hope do I have that I can even begin to understand what Scripture has to say about prophecy? And after all, isn't studying prophecy in end times, isn't, isn't it just divisive? Shouldn't we spend our time studying more important things from God's Word that have greater application to our lives? And then lastly, if this is all future and it's going to happen anyway... Why is it important that I know about it? So, as we attempt to answer from Scripture why we should be studying prophecy, we want to know 
think about. Is studying prophecy secondary? Is it optional for the believer? You know, it's certainly true that we don't enter into saving faith by believing a particular prophetic scenario, but instead by placing our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. However, the Bible does still exhort believers to interpret the Bible with precision. I'm up. Here's a verse I'll read. You don't have to turn there. 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Interpreting and handling God's word requires diligence. And implicit in this instruction in 2 Timothy is that many will mishandle God's word. And we're in, a, we're in danger of mishandling God's word when we don't put in that effort, when we're not diligent, when we're not engaging as workmen and workwomen, and certainly this applies to prophecy. But nowhere does the Old Testament or New Testament even hint that prophetic portions are exempted from careful, detailed knowing and understanding. Nowhere does God reveal something in Scripture that is so unimportant so as to make it optional for believers. If you can, please turn to Acts chapter 20. And as we start to think about the question of the importance of prophecy, it's helpful if we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and what his example was. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders prior to his departure, and he reminds them, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. So so Paul's example is that he would teach anything that was profitable for believers. He didn't shrink back. And regardless of the opinions or the opposition of others, he taught what was profitable. So what did this profitable material include? Look down to verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. You know, we don't have an exhaustive list of all the profitable things that Paul taught. But we know that one of those things was the kingdom. And what does it mean that he preached the kingdom? Well, it certainly included the message of salvation. But it also included the message of the coming kingdom of Jesus on earth that the Old Testament predicted and was still future during Paul's time and is still future during our time. And so this is, a, this is an important reminder for the TES Super Seminar. If you want to hear more about that, Dr. Vlock will be walking through from Genesis to Revelation what the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God. That will be extremely helpful if you would put that on your calendar. But in Acts 20, what did Paul teach? He says, I taught anything that was profitable, and I taught the kingdom. And now in verse 27, Paul taught the whole purpose Or counsel of God. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul addressed the Ephesian elders and reminded them that he preached to them the whole counsel of God. He preached them everything that was profitable and he taught them concerning the kingdom. And so, in what other things we should ask ourselves did Paul consider that were profitable? And I think in his own words, when he would later write to Timothy, 
In 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So if, if, when Paul says all scripture is profitable, it's fair to assume that what Paul taught the Ephesian elders included both the Old Testament, it included the kingdom, and it would have also included new revelation that Paul had received from Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so it's on this basis that Paul can claim that he proclaimed to them the whole counsel of God. But someone might come with the objection, okay, Paul did this, but isn't prophecy just too hard for us to understand? Um, If we can, we'll spend a little bit of time looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 16 Here is Peter, now speaking of Paul's scriptural writings, says, As also in all of his letters, speaking speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they also do the rest rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And when I look at this passage, I typically recognize that here, Peter is recognizing what Paul is writing as scripture as well. And that's usually where I stop. But Peter is here warning that there are things that are in scripture that are difficult to understand and they are likely to be distorted. And we need to be on guard so that we are not carried away by error. But let's let's spend a little bit of time looking back over the context of these words in 2 Peter 3. And just to start off with, these words are given in an eschatological context. Start in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter opens this section by reminding the believers that on more than one occasion, he has pointed them out to their spiritual need to constantly remember two categories of revelation from God. Number one, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Generally, this refers to the Old Testament, but also specifically to those prophetic portions of Scripture. And secondly, the second area of revelation that is worthy of constant remembering by believers is the commandment of the Lord spoken by the apostles. That is the teaching and revelation that came from Christ and was given through the apostles and is what makes up the New Testament today. So notice, Peter is living in a time... After the coming of Jesus, after Jesus had already been giving commandments through the apostles, and some of that teaching has already been written down as scripture, such as Paul's writings that he just referenced. Yet no indication is given that in light of the fact that believers now have new revelation, new scripture, New Testament truth, that they should give less attention to the Old Testament prophets. On the contrary, Peter reminds them to continue to devote themselves to both the Old and the New Testaments, to all of God's words. Okay, we got that. So, so what are some of the things 
from both the prophets and the apostles that Peter is so concerned that they would remember. And so it's really instructed to see the content of chapter 3. Verse 3, knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And verse 7 turns to the day of judgment. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed and the elements will, mer- will melt with intense heat. Verse 13 turns to discuss the believer's anticipation of the new heavens and new earth. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So after reminding believers of the importance of remembering both the words of the prophets and the apostles, he turns specifically to eschatological truth about the last days in verses 3 through 13 that came through those prophets and through those apostles. And we could stop there if needed. I think Peter's made his case. But what about the objection that it's too difficult? Peter, with this verses 1 through 13 in mind, then reminds them in verse 14 that Paul already wrote to them about all of these things. And it's these very things, these eschatological truths from both the Old and the New Testaments, some of which are difficult to understand, that the unstable distort. So so how is the believer to respond to these eschatological truths? Indifference? Avoidance? Notice what the believer's response to these things, these eschatological truths is to be. And I wrote these down for you. The believer is to remember the teachings of the prophets and apostles. Verse 1, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand. Verse 3, the believer is to know these things. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come. Believers should be armed with the truth concerning the expectation of the last days. The believer also ought to consider what these truths reveal about God. Verse 8, but do not let this one, one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and the thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter is not introducing a new hermeneutic to understand when God says one day he actually means a thousand years. That's not what's being discussed here. What's being discussed here is that God is patient. He's not like us. And for believers, when we inevitably feel at some point where we cry out, Lord, when are you coming again? Believers are to stand back and recognize, wow, God is patient. And because of that patience, countless others will have the opportunity to come to repentance and to worship him forever and share in his joy. 
Right, right? This, is, this is similar to what we saw in Romans 11 this morning where in light of the future promises of the restoration of Israel, we are to turn and consider God's kindness and God's severity. Right? The believer always to con- is to consider these eschatological truths and what they show us about God. So as you read prophetic scripture, slow down and ask yourself, what does this reveal about God? And how does it affect my worship? Another response that believers are to have is believers' conduct ought to be transformed by what we know about the future. Verse 11, since all of these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know, our understanding of the end ought to crucify our love of this world and materialism. Believers ought to long for the new heavens and new earth, verse 13. We are to live holy lives, verse 14. We read, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Believers are to be on guard against error and distortion of the scriptures. We read verse 17, believers are to be steadfast. Believers are to grow in grace and knowledge of what God has revealed. And this is important. Remember the eschatological context of this and these eschatological truths? In response, we are to be growing in these things. So in summary, we're not commanded to avoid hard teaching, but to persevere in it to grow in our knowledge so that we're not carried away by error, and to allow that truth, difficult as it may be, to shape our lives and prepare us for living in an unrighteous age, and to orient us towards an anticipation of the Lord's coming and the new heavens and the new earth. Nowhere in the Bible do we find even the slightest hint that these prophetic matters should be avoided because they might be controversial or hard to understand. But to the contrary... Everything in God's word, including those parts of scripture concerning prophecy, is profitable. And it is to be taught. And it's to be received and diligently sought for by believers. And this knowledge, rightly appropriated, ought to have a transformative effect on the way we live. But another objection then, maybe prophecy is important for pastors and teachers or even long-time believers, but what about your average Christian? Do we need to know this? What about a junior high schooler or a high schooler? Right, Surely this material might be optional for them who are not leading the church. We know you don't need to turn to Acts, but we know from Acts 17 that Paul stayed in Thessalonica for at least three Sabbaths reasoning from the Scriptures. Acts 17.2. So this included three Sabbath days, but it could have been just a little bit over two weeks or maybe nearly five weeks, depending on when those days started. However long it was, you'll recall that he quickly wore out his welcome in the synagogues. But in the meantime, people were converted, verse 4, and apparently Paul was teaching these gathered new believers from the scriptures before the angry mob came looking for him and attacked the house of Jason. Then in verse 10, the believers immediately sent Paul away by night to Berea, leaving behind this newly formed band of believers. 
But while he is there, Paul had taught these new believers the scriptures. Now, if you had a new group of believers facing persecution, what would you teach them? Would you instruct them about the Antichrist? Would you talk to them about the rebuilding of the temple? Or maybe the second coming of Jesus and how he was going to destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth? Would you teach them about the apostasy that is to come? That sounds like a great new believers class. That might not be your first choice. But we do know that some of the things that Paul taught them during this brief time, we, we know about that content because of what he later writes in First and Second Thessalonians. And he reminds them of some of the things that he taught them when he was still with them during this very small window. And it gives us some insight into what truths Paul felt it was necessary to instruct brand new believers in. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It seems that these Christians' composure had recently been shaken because of the false teaching concerning the day of the Lord. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In those few short weeks when Paul was teaching this brand new group of believers before he was chased out of the city, Paul had already taught them concerning these future events. So if we were to answer our question of whether new or immature believers should be taught about prophecy and end times, Paul's answer is evident, yes. But I want to continue answering this question from a different lens and just looking at the overall content of scripture, the abundance of prophetic material in our scripture. In scripture, 66 out of our 66 New Testament books contain predictive revelation. It's 94% of the books of our Bible. 27% of all verses in our Bible, give or take, refer to prophetic issues. So if you want to avoid prophecy, you can go ahead and cut out about a quarter of your Bible right now. Now, now while I'm sure none of us would actually do that, can we be guilty of doing the same thing indirectly by what scripture we choose to place in front of us and what books we maybe tend to avoid? Um, a couple other statistics. 22% of all prophetic reverses refer to Christ's second coming. That's about one verse out of every 16 or 17 in our Bibles that references the second coming of the Lord. And don't incorrectly assume that this is just in the New Testament. Right? Is, is this a subject then that believers ought to spend some time being familiar with? I think if we want to know what our Bibles have to say and what God chose to reveal, the answer is yes. 
Um, next to the subject of faith and salvation, Christ's second coming is actually the most prominent in the New Testament. So certainly the biblical God felt that he would choose to sovereignly take up a substantial portion of our Bibles, speaking of the future. A few other, a few commands and commendations from Scripture to answer this question of why should we study prophecy is consider that the study of all Scripture, that no Scripture is to be exempted, and this theme appears from both in both the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And I've recall the words of Matthew 28. This is that great commission passage. Go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. So here's the great commission. Certainly this is evangelism. But Jesus also instructs the church, make disciples, and then teach them to observe everything that I commanded. So did Jesus teach concerning his second coming and future events? Did Jesus give commands as to how one ought to respond to it? Yes, recall in Acts 1 where Jesus instructed the, the disciples for 40 days on the kingdom of God. Not to mention all the other times that he spoke about these events in his earthly ministry, least of which is that sermon that we, we refer to as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 through 25, that eschatological sermon that Jesus delivered. Certainly, the Great Commission includes the charge to teach everything that Jesus taught to disciples. Um, if we can, we also see in Acts 2 that the new early church was committed to all of the apostles' teaching. And I think we've already demonstrated now that the apostles certainly did teach about eschatological truths. But I want to look in just our last few minutes about some scriptural consequences or benefits from reading scripture or from reading and studying prophecy. The study of prophecy promotes obedience and provides a gateway to God's blessing Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and the things that are written in it for the time is near. Revelation 22.7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who reads the words of the prophecy of this book. A few other reasons to study prophecy. Prophetic material equips saints to refuse those who mock the Christian hope. And we looked at First Second Peter already. Prophecy provides answers to theological questions that are found nowhere else in Scripture, such as the relationship between the resurrection and the rapture, which brings hope and comfort. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And then 4.18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Understanding the prophetic truth of 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture brings hope and comforts believers and provides them and equips them to comfort one another. Prophecy also gives motivation for holy living. Um, turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I'll begin reading that. Titus 2, 11. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, believers are those who look back at the redeeming work of Christ and look forward to look for his appearing, which together have a purifying effect and motivate us to deny ungodliness. 1 John 3, 2-3, prophetic expectation purifies. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. There are a few other reasons that are listed um, down in your notes, prophecy is a source of hope, comfort, and encouragement. The study of prophecy encourages patient endurance in the midst of suffering and trials. Prophecy produces concern for service. The prophetic fact of the future, the judgment seat of Christ, is the reason that the Apostle Paul labored that he might be pleasing to God if, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. Uh, you can read that on your own. So hopefully that gives you a sense of what are some reasons that scripture says I should read prophecy and study it. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like in the coming weeks. But just a a couple quick pitfalls as we approach this subject. Knowledge puffs up, right? If we come to this just with the desire to know a timeline of events, we're, we're missing what scripture would have and what God would have for the transformation that he expects from our lives in these truths. Um, I think we also want to just say at the gate, we want to exercise a lot of caution in identifying current events with prophecies in scripture. Uh, Christian church history is full of people from all flavors of eschatology of setting specific dates, contrary to the teaching of scripture that only the father knows the appointed time of the son's return or identifying the Antichrist. So we want to be a very, um, we, we want to escape that temptation. And there's also, there's a seductive spell of unhealthy speculation when it comes to eschatology. And we want to stay free from that. Titus 3.9 says, avoid foolish controversies. 1 Timothy 1.3, you know, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. When we study eschatology, when scripture is silent, don't feel the need to have an answer for every question. Uh, but what is revealed By faith, receive it, and be diligent to know and believe it. God has put it there for us to know and to understand and to worship him in response. And finally, don't spiritualize. Take what your Bible says at face value. We'll talk more about the interpretation of prophecy next time. But hopefully this provides that encouragement that the Bible has an expectation that believers would read and study and even understand prophetic scripture and that there is great value in it for the believer. 
Next time we'll talk more about where we go from here. Thank you. We're, you're dismissed. <laughs>